Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author, R.A. Mueller, has written a book titled Mysterious Secrets from Behind the Veil, Truth, Veil, and Deception, the World's Greatest Devastating Deception. The title of, yeah, Mysterious Secrets from Behind the Veil. From Behind the Veil. Rick, as you're referring to the term veil, what is the symbolism behind that imagery? Well, it's uh, it's sort of like a hidden, it's uh, something that you're looking at but you can't see through it. You know what I mean? Yes. uh, information there that you can't grab, and you have to find the answers in order to get through that veil. And you're, I don't know if that's a good enough. To, I think that I think that pretty well covers it. You're you're located in British Columbia in Canada, and have written this book. What is the basic reason you decided you wanted to to share information that you have uncovered? Well, the thing is, I was uh, excommunicated from one of these Church of God organizations, and. Uh, that kind of got my goat, eh? Because I was ask, asking questions that they couldn't answer, and uh, all this and that. And I caught a guy going in in the store, or coming out of the store, having a cup of coffee, eh? Right. And this is on the Sabbath day. Mm. So. And, uh, and that's sat- Saturday by their their teaching, correct? That's right, Saturday. And you're not supposed to conduct any businesses to, uh, with anybody on Sabbath day. So I just said to the, to the individual, said, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be going in there on the, on the Sabbath day. Uh-huh. He said, well, the others are in there. I said, well, just because the others are in there doesn't mean you have to be in there. So the next week they, they told me I wasn't welcome. <laughs> so uh, Well, you need to start drinking coffee. Maybe that was it. Yeah. Anyway, the next week I, I stayed home and I made a vow to myself. I'm going to find out what this Bible is all about. Or change, eh? Right. And anyway, um, I started studying it. It took quite a while, and I ended up with loose leaves. Oh, I'd say about six inches high, just uh, just loosely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked at that thing, and I said to myself, "How in the hell am I going to find something in that pile? You know, to prove and reprove whatever." Yeah. Anyway, I decided that's when I decided, you know, I have to put it all in the book form. And that's when the book started. And how, start, uh, how long ago was that, uh, Rich? Oh, it's uh, almost 10 years. 10 years ago. Yeah. It, it took a long time, you know. I'm not the, uh, the brightest person in the world, and I'm not the dumbest either, but uh, it takes a lot of work to get this book together. And uh, what I found, it, it didn't shock me. And I figured, well, you know, I have to get this book out to the public. That's all there's to it, you know, to uh, let them know what's what. Because uh, we're in such a dire straits right now that uh, there's no hope in hell anymore. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you're, you're um, 
you get yourself closer to God and and uh, understand what He's trying to tell you and all this and that. And I came to a a, a scripture in the uh, in, uh, in Proverbs one, the very first proverb, uh, verse twenty three. And it, it, I read this, and all of a sudden, the light clicked in my head. And it says there, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. And, you know, my hair was standing up. I could just feel it. And uh, I, it, it took a hold of me, and I know for a fact, that God himself was giving me all this knowledge that I was gathering uh, to get into a book. And I just kept going, and it just, just, just really got me going. And I found out things that uh, are absolutely unreal, that uh, this King Saul, the, um, the king, first king of the Israelites, he uh, actually died with the evil spirit on him. That's right. And then he came back in the New Testament times as this Saul called Paul. The same person. Same person. Same person. And he is the builder of the Christian religion. Now, and, how, how did you determine that the New Testament Saul was the Old Testament Saul also? Well, you just put it all together. You put it all together, the devil can, God allows the devil to do certain things also. God can bring whomever he wants back, and he allowed the devil to do the same. So this King Saul, he built the Christian religion, and he basically, well, he, this Christ that he brought about was only an imaginary figure of himself. Ah. Is who that Christ is. And uh, anyway, the, the apostles found out, the, the two apostles, mm-hmm. they found out that he was preaching a different gospel altogether. And uh, they made a vow not to eat nor drink until they have killed this guy. Because he, they let him join their group. And uh, he was preaching this false gospel with his with his uh, uh, disciples, I guess you can call them. Right. And um, they made that vow not to eat nor drink until they have killed this guy. It was out so, of the book of Acts, wasn't it, somewhere in there? That's right. Yeah, it's in the book of Acts. And uh, uh, I, there was a young lad that heard, heard them over uh, stating this uh, statement this uh, threat, and uh, he went and told Agrippa, and then Agrippa got a hold of Paul, and Paul was kind of preaching to him, and uh, I guess he he was a good preacher because Agrippa said, "Thou almost persuade me to become a Christian." So anyway, it was it, it turned out that Paul did not want to have to go to court in the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. He wanted to have it in Rome. So basically, uh, he ended up, or he was go- on his way to Rome, and the ship and the ship busted up, and he made it to shore, and 
you know, you don't hear any, it doesn't tell you anything after that about it. Anyway, he started preaching his gospel. And that's where it started with the Gentile people, eh? Yes. And, um, uh, well, my, my question, I guess, would be, be this, because you also have a, a different view from traditional, uh, we'll call it Christianity, about uh, who Christ was or the anointed of God. Um, where do you think he actually, If was there a, a prophecy related to the first coming or the reality of, a, of Christ? No, it it was just a it was just an imaginary figure of himself. He's making himself that Christ. Ah, this this is his religion because it wasn't there was no Christian religion before that. It was his religion that he built and he brought this Christ forward, which is of himself. Now there are some historical commentaries uh, like oh I don't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the 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 first what are called the Gospels talking about disciples of Jesus and, and uh, of his early life and uh, how that they actually seemed to think that he was the Son of God. Was that something that uh, snuck in or was added by future writers, or how did that get, uh, get into print? Well, it got in later on by uh, you know, future writers, I guess you could say. Okay. But... Um, you also, well, to, you also mentioned Charlemagne. Yeah. What is your thoughts on Charlemagne? You said King Saul was, was probably an, uh, the, uh, the, that Paul, the New Testament Paul, the was actually King Saul. Yeah, he was yeah, the reincarnation. reincarnation again of King Saul. This year, Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Okay. Yeah, he, he was another big, huge man, just like King Saul was. And this guy, he was even ahead of the Christian religion because he showed all the popes in his days. They didn't uh, vote in a pope. He picked the pope. He was a pope picker. And, uh, yeah, he actually chose the popes. He spent a whole winter in the Vatican working on the scriptures. That's uh, what history books tell us. And uh, naturally, he added on a whole bunch of his words to some of the true apostles' writings. And... Uh, you know, he just uh, changed a, a, a lot of these writings. If you check the the, uh, the book of Ezra, the second book of Ezra, who was really Ezra, but this is a kind of a Greek saying, I guess, of it. And uh, he added the first two chapters to that book. Huh. And it's praising this tall young man eh? uh, that, that, that the people were following and all this and that. And uh, it was all about himself again. The first two chapters of 2 Ezra don't even belong there. It starts with the third chapter. That's the proper part. Uh, the the um, proper book, start of the book. But it was easy for him to add on to any, any uh, true apostles' writings. He could add on things here and there or change this or change that. And... Uh, you know, it's just a normal thing for him to do, or his disciples during their lifetime. Now, this is a unique approach, Rick, and a lot of people have not heard this story before. Who do you think is going to find this an interesting bit of work that you've done? Well, I'll tell you one thing: it'll, it'll uh, 
it sure uh, make the Christians think of what they're worshiping. And uh, hopefully other people that don't even go to church will start picking up the Bible and start uh, reading it. Because it's a very, very important uh, time of uh, our civilizations. We're coming to the end within, oh, well, there's only a, a two and a half years maximum. And the war starts. And that's when God starts claiming us back. Because Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, uh, Daniel's 1211 scripture mm-hmm. of the 1290 biblical years. Right. Started when Charlemagne attacked the Saxons' place of worship at that Stonehenge site. That Stonehenge site is not 25,000 years old. It's less than 2,500 years old. Because they built that thing after they got their release. The House of Israel got their release from the Assyrians when the Babylonians came into world power. And that was around the 650 mark or something like this. Anyway, it, and they migrated all the way to the British Isles, and on the way they stopped to, uh, you know, stop. They went to like stop at uh, Belgium, right? Uh, uh, Netherlands, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, and the whole of the British Isles, Switzerland, and France. France uh, stayed just moved over. That's basically what happened. But uh, the the French people all thought Charlemagne was one of them. But uh, he was actually uh, an is uh, a Benjamite of the tribe, uh, tribe of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin. Interesting. Yeah. An interesting thought. Interesting theory. Now, how long did it take you, Rick, to complete your book? Oh, about ten years. A lot roughly. of re- a lot of research also went behind this. Oh, sure, a lot of research. You know, I dug into the history of Charlemagne and stuff like that, too, and uh, other books. And um, when I heard that Stonehenge uh, site had had uh, the east entrance lined up directly with the summer solstice sunrise, and the the west entrance lined up directly with the summer solstice sunset, or the winter solstice sunset, right. I knew right then and there that was the temple they built. Because that's that's God's entrance. He comes in when the sun's coming up into the into the temple, and that gate was only used by God and the king or leader of the people, and where the leader of the people sat and ate his meals. Rick, how would you introduce this book to somebody in a couple of sentences? Get them interested in getting a copy of it. Let me ask it another way. How would you describe your book to someone who doesn't know anything about this concept? How would I describe it? Well, I'm, try, I'm trying to do that right now. The, the thing is, this book is, it tells you exactly what has happened over the many years. And we have been put into the devil's firstborn son's hand when Charlemagne attacked their place of worship. And it, we will be we will be in that hand for twelve hundred and sixty biblical years. Now it took Solomon thirty biblical years to fully impose us into it, and when you add the twelve sixty to it, it comes to twelve ninety because everybody wasn't 
you know, they, they were imposed, it was imposed upon them in different years throughout the 30 biblical year time. So, and then God, at the end of the 1290s time, time period, God starts claiming us back. And that's, that's where the first ones that the, the Christian religion was imposed upon them will be the first, one, first ones to be reclaimed. And the last ones that, were, that had the Christian religion imposed upon them will be the last ones to be reclaimed. So it comes out at the 1290 that way. You've written a chapter titled The Day of the Lord Our God. There are many people in the Christian faith that talk about the Day of the Lord. What are you seeing as a, a probability of an interpretation of the Day of the Lord? Well, that's when he starts to bring, bring this back. And the whole 30 biblical year time is the Day of the Lord. He's bringing us back to his, uh, his control, you could say. Right, and you feel that's a 30-year 30, 30 period. Oh, yes, that's a 30-year period. And that thing begins in uh, 2016, at the uh, end of August, beginning of September, right in that area. Interesting. And that's only a couple of years away. It is. Yeah, well, it's a fact. That's why I'm saying this is very important for the people to buy this book and and find out what's what. Uh, Rick, you mentioned that you have come across several of the covenants that you feel are important to our society today. What are those? Well, those, those covenants uh, that people should, uh, should check out on are 2 Kings, chapter 17, 35 to 39, and uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 1 to 23, where in 23... God states, I forbid you to do this. And what he's talking about from the beginning of that verse is about having graven images for you, for us to worship, pray, to serve as if they are gods. God says, I forbid you to do this. And the same with the, uh, with the covenant of, uh, on two kings. It tells you right then and there, you are to worship God only, pray to God only, sacrifice to God only, and absolutely no one else. Now, if they people can't understand those two scriptures, they're lost. Hmm. Because these two scriptures, there's no, no two ways about it. There's only the one God, and that's it. The Christian's Christ and all their saints and everything else, with all their images, are nothing but falsehood. Fascinating perspective. It's a contemporary and certainly unique approach to the understanding of Scripture. The title is Mysterious Secrets from Behind the Veil, The Truth, The Veil, The Deception, and our author, R.A. Mueller. Mr. Mueller, where are you planning to, are you planning to also write a follow-up book to this? Uh, not really, no. No, I'm not really an artist or a, uh, a um, what do you call it? The, an author, a writer? An author. Yes. You know, it's just, I was, uh, I had to write it. You know, I didn't have no choice. I have to write this thing because what I found out about uh, all this information, there was no stopping me. I had to bring this out. And there's nothing else I have to bring out but this book. 
That's why I don't think I'll ever write another one because uh, I'm not a I'm not an author. It's something I have to do. Thank you for sharing and, uh, the uh, the information and the story behind the composition and the writing of this book, Mysterious Secrets from Behind the Veil, author R.A. Mueller. And your book can be obtained online if they'll do a search under your name or under the Mysterious Secrets from Behind the Veil title. They'll probably right. find it at Barnes & Noble and all of the other online bookstores. Mr. Mueller, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, To North Vietnam and Back Again, a personal account of A-6 intruder operations in Vietnam, and the author and bombardier navigator Edward Engel joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Ed. Hello. How you doing? Great to have you with us. Uh, this is your autobiography and is really set in this uh, environment of flying off of naval aircraft carriers, which in and of itself is a bit overwhelming to most of us that you even were able to uh, be a part of that. But then, of course, uh, during Vietnam to uh, be used uh, against the enemy over Laos and South Vietnam and North Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, a lot of assignments, a lot of responsibility, a lot of danger, uh, but you love to fly, don't you? I sure did. Best job I ever had. Yes, uh, we often hear that from folks who fly. It's just a, uh, it just is what it is. It is exciting and, and all of the above, but of course in war, uh, does it, is it on your, mind very much i mean when you're flying it seems like you can be detached from the war but uh, do you really understand the danger well uh, i think you'll hear this from a lot of combat veterans but because uh, i've heard it myself on veteran shows but but it's true uh you you worry about it when you're not flying you know if you're briefing or mm -hmm. you're getting ready to brief uh you worry about it but once you get up on the flight deck and man up an airplane, you don't have time to worry about it. There are just too many things that have to be taken care of because 
any one of them can kill you if you don't pay attention to it. Mm. And that's not enemy fire. That's just operating off a ship. Uh, and it's the nature of airplanes in general. I think anybody that would fly would tell you that it starts with the pre-flight, being very careful that the airplane is safe. But moreover, for, for naval aviators, I mean, when, when you get in that airplane and the plane captain breaks the chains down, you can feel that uh, vibration in the aircraft and you start taxiing forward, you have to be extremely careful because there's so many things going on in the flight deck. And from that point on, you really don't have time to be afraid of anything. A6 Intruder, what made the A6 so important and so critical? Uh, well, it was the Navy's all-weather attack aircraft. And I suppose, in a very real sense, it was the Navy's B-52. I mean, obviously, a B-52 isn't going to fit on an aircraft carrier. But uh, but we were the Navy's strategic bomber. Uh, in those days, we were known as medium attack. Um, the, the Navy had had big bombers earlier, A-3s, that were known as heavy attack, and, and we deployed in air wings with light attack aircraft, A-7s, single-seat, single-engine. Uh, but the A6, of course, was uh, two seats and two engines. And uh, there were times during the monsoon season over there in the Gulf of Tonkin when the A6 and the E2, are, uh, are the, the Navy's version of AWACS, were the only aircraft that launched because the weather was that bad. And we launched daytime, nighttime, all weather didn't make any difference. And uh, the A6... And the Air Force's F-111, the only two aircraft that were allowed to fly alone up into Route Package 6, which is the Red River Valley between Hanoi and Haiphong, unescorted uh, uh, single aircraft sort of thing. No other aircraft was allowed to do that. But at the same time, you point out that the Navy was not prepared for this aircraft uh, to enter into fleet operations? Well, uh Yes, uh, but from a, I don't think anyone could have predicted this, uh, because being military people, I, I, I don't think, certainly nobody in my training command pipeline made us aware of the, the relationship in geophysics and uh, uh, charts and the physical earth and the limitations there, there too, although maybe they should have. Uh, at the time, years later, I came across a video that the Defense Mapping Agency at that time, they, they no longer exist, uh, had made that uh, made the case that you cannot plan missions from charts. And there are several limitations, one of which is the the datum that's used uh, for the uh, relational points on the ground. I, I don't want to get into a lot of technical detail, but but charts can't be used for mission planning to drop precise uh, 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 precisely on a target. And uh, the only way that, that one can do that is, is if you actually take uh, three-dimensional photographs of an area, digitize all that stuff, and then you can make relational uh, precise relational measurements between one point and another, and nothing in Laos along the Ho Chi Minh Trail was was radar significant. So you couldn't attack a target directly with the radar. You had to do it using an offset aim point, as we call it. Uh, 
and in Laos, uh, the terrain is such that you have a lot of these uh, very distinct limestone formations that are called karst, uh, K-A-R-S-T, uh, ridges. And, uh, and we had cataloged all these things that would make good radar aim points. So you could actually run a karst ridge and you'd tell a computer what the offset information was. But you had to make that measurement very precisely. And, and, and here again, I go back to what DMA said. Charts don't support that sort of precision. Navy didn't seem to understand that. I, I, to, even today, I can't tell you why that was. Uh, but we didn't have the mission planning equipment on the ship to be able to, to, to do what I just described. Hmm. And it wasn't until the Air Force started mapping Laos with, uh, with their F-4s their photo F4s, uh, into a huge computer that they had at, at the Royal Thai Air Base, Nakhon Phanom in Thailand, that uh, that we had the relational database required to, to make these measurements for offset aimpoints. And when I was at Nakhon Phanom, and I, I helped put the aimpoints into that database, uh, I found some of our offset information was as much as 2,000 feet off. Uh, because we had measured it from charts, two thousand feet. Conventional ordnance, you're not going to hit anything. Right. And the A6 early in the game got a bad rap for uh, not being a very precise airplane, and that frustrated all of us because we knew what we could do with it on the bombing ranges in the states. Uh, you know, where you have a very precise radar reflector. And you can run a thing directly, and, uh, and you see where the bomb goes, and you know the airplane is capable of, of precision. But you have to make that measurement, and that measurement has to be precise, and it has to be based on an accurate database. We didn't have any of that on the ship. Well, your book details mission planning and execution with the A-6 intruder aircraft. Uh, you were on uh, two different carriers during uh, the war. What were they? Well, the first was the America, uh, and oddly, she uh, was home ported in Norfolk, so it was an East Coast ship, and we had a West Coast air wing, and that was a very strange experience. Um, and that cruise, uh, we didn't, uh, almost did not ever bomb outside of Laos. I mean, it was almost exclusively bombing on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, because the bombing halt that uh, President Johnson had instilled was still uh, in effect. And uh, my second cruise was on the Constellation, and uh, that was uh, home port in San Diego, so that was West Coast Air Wing, West Coast ship. And uh, we had built a terrific team. That Air Wing ship team was the best I was ever associated with. The uh, ship was fantastic, and the Air Wing was just as good. Uh, we uh, We suffered our losses on that cruise, but... We did absolutely everything on that cruise. In fact, the Constellation got the presidential unit citation. It was a ship that Randy Cunningham flew off of. I was in the air wing with Randy, and unfortunately everybody knows Randy Cunningham's name associated with the congressional scandal, but I knew him when he was a fighter pilot, and he was one of the best fighter pilots I ever met. Uh, so he became the first MIG ace of the war. We uh, we had many other uh, firsts. We were first to mine up there. And as it turned out, I was the first to bomb after the Johnson bombing halt. Took me years to figure that out, but uh, but nonetheless, uh, my airplane dropped the first bombs up there in Haiphong, 
uh, since I think the bombing halt was instilled in 1967, and that mission flew in uh, April of 72, so that was five years that they had to rearm. And that night, uh, we had eight A6s, three from Constellation, three from Kitty Hawk, and two Marine A6s from Carl C. Uh, and the F4s off the coast counted 55 SAMs fired at us, missiles, mm. SA2. Didn't hit anybody. My goodness. <laughs> So that's a combination of flying very low, very fast, and using electronic countermeasures, which I won't go into. Right. But well, uh, uh, just suffice it to say, when I say very low, <laughs> my, my computer froze. Uh, the A6 computer would freeze when the bombs fell, so you could write down the data. Uh, I looked up at my computer, and my above-ground altitude was 120 feet when the bombs came off. My goodness. And this is in the middle of the night. Flying at what speed? 500 plus. Wow. Well, your book details all of that. It also talks about your post-war assignments and uh, your career change. Uh, tell us a little bit about what went on after the war. Well, uh, as the book describes, uh, I went to an engineering high school. Not too many people do that. So I had been, I guess, I guess my, my liberal arts friends would say brainwashed from a very early age. But, <laughs> but I sort of grew up being an engineer. And uh, so when the war was over, uh, it was time to really get back into that. And uh, my first assignment was was to do operational testing out of San Diego, and uh, and that took a lot of my engineering skills. Um, I was able to actually go out and take brand new systems that were in the acquisition pipeline and have sailors operate them and maintain them and 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 measure data for for their performance and write reports on it. So I, it was a big learning experience for me, and it was a great job. Uh, but uh, later on, after my last squadron tour in V-52, which was peacetime on the Kitty Hawk, uh, I had gotten orders to uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and I got a master's degree in aeronautical engineering avionics. And before I graduated, uh, I was recruited into a program that the gentleman I was talking to on the phone would not describe or discuss. I... Never had a conversation like that with me. <laughs> and um, I asked my curricular officer if, if he was on the level. It was a Navy captain by the name of Tom Betterton. And uh, and he said, I, I know Captain Betterton, and I'm telling you, it's a great job, and I can't tell you anymore. I really didn't want to leave the West Coast, but the job was in D.C., so I called him back and accepted. And I had no idea, but but I actually had been recruited in a Navy space program. So the second half of my career, I spent it in, uh, in space uh, systems. Uh, and, uh, mostly I concentrated in trying to operationalize the data that came out of these systems so that the, the average uh, GI could make use of it and it would give him an edge in combat. Mm -hmm. uh, my combat experience really helped because I kind of knew what people needed and how fast they needed it. 
so it really helped to design things that would help him get that. And ultimately, as the book describes, um, I, I was very fortunate in being able to put together a program that the Navy chose to call Challenge Athena. And it was commercial wideband uh, uh, satellite communications, which enabled those very systems that we didn't have in Vietnam to help plan the missions that the A6 uh, was was uh, given. Um, that wideband communications was actually essential to being able to plan those things, and it was it was interesting because. It came about since the Joint Cruise Missile Office had a requirement to replan uh, Tomahawk strikes uh, within an hour. And the only way they determined that you could do that was a float. Uh, well, you have to get the data there. And, and these files are just so huge that you can't use uh, narrow band sorts of satellite communications, which is what the Navy had up to that time. Uh, it, it was... It was a great experience to be able to go through the frustration of not having the data and then being put in the position exactly. that, I, that, yeah. that I could actually add those systems to the ship. And, and all, the, all our carriers have those systems today. Well, this is an incredible book giving us insights into all of this uh, details of mission planning and uh, execution and, then of course, uh, of basically helping the Navy understand how to best use the A6. So a uh, tremendous book. Ed, tell us how to get your book to North Vietnam and back again. Well, uh, uh, you can get it directly from Ex Libris online or uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ed, on Ex Libris On Air. Okay, thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Wedding Day, and the poet is Lee Won Ro from Korea. And Mr. Lee has asked me if I would just read the information about him that is listed on his book so everyone understands uh, a little bit about his background and then to read some of his poems. 
Lee One Row's poetic world pursues the universal themes with profound aesthetic enthusiasm. His work combines wisdom and knowledge derived from his scientific background with his artistic power stemming from creative imagination and astute intuition. Lee One Row's verse embroiders refined tints and serene tones on the fabric of embellished words. The poet explores the universe in conjunction with his expertise in intellectual, affective, and spiritual domains as a specialist in medicine and science. Mr. Lee has had a career prominent in uh, literary activities. Along with his extensive experiences and contributions in medical science and practice, uh, he's the author of nine poetry books, Wedding Day is an anthology of many of his poems that he's written through the years and the first comprehensive selection of his poems in English. He's published extensively, including nine books related to medicine, both for professionals and general readership. So now I'm just going to pick out a few of his poems and share them with you. Here's one titled Heart of the Universe. Thinking is seeing. In order to see what I've been thinking, launching the eyes up into the universe, I place a long antenna in the brain, into the newly outfitted Hubble telescope, enters the heart of universe, so far hidden into the back alley of the brain, the unexplored boundary is unfolding. Whether seen or not seen, what exists does exist. Disappearing simply appears to be so. Running after the peak experience. Everything towards the peak experience passes through the road of ups and downs, endlessly growing up. In the madness of constellations overturning and shaking the universe, stars become extinct. Stars arise higher, lower, intense, pale, bright, dark, seen, unseen, looking forward to the peak experience, endlessly soaring high. Hence, the universe is the peak experience. Here's another one titled Balloon. In Children's Park, at all times, balloons are floating up, bigger than the round full moon, all sorts and colors of balloons. Children from where and where to, having learnt where, when, and how, with all their hearts and efforts and strength, towards the navel of the universe, send balloons up. Along the winds, countless balloons go up, just the way pollen scatters in the air, each and every balloon making time by itself, making space by itself, is composing the universe in numerous colors. In Children's Park, at all times, children, from where and where to, having learnt where, when and how, aiming at the navel of the universe, endlessly send balloons up. Here's one titled, Music is Alive. Music is alive. Whether sound stops or sound is not audible, music is always alive. Music does not die, just as desert stays alive. Listen intently, snow-covered fields, underneath frozen ground. Music comes into hearing until the enormous spring gets to make a counterattack. I practice waiting. 
Look at trees, look at flowers. Although sound is not audible, music comes into hearing, permeating into the heart, resounding in the heart, as the desert is alive, as the universe is alive. Music is alive. Surprising history and unknown promises are contained. From the center of the hidden universe, even now, fireworks are in full blast. A sublime symphony is being made, a solemn festival of creation and extinction. Riding on the waves, scatters, vibrating the echoing universe, magnificent music riding on nebula, enters into the center of the heart, making its way into the brain, spreading out elaborate atoms and ecstatic molecules, moving hidden, are having the display of fireworks. Heart of the universe is filling the hidden brain cells. Endless network is being made. Limitlessly music flourishes. Limitlessly music reverberates throughout. Mr. Lee's book is divided up into several sections. His book of poetry, uh, let me name just a few. From Naval of Universe, from Map of Wind, from window of moment, from mosaic, from pantomime, from stethoscope and telescope, from an unusually sunny day, and finally from beyond light and sound. Here's a poem titled Chaos and Order. Feels like something is about to happen. Feels like someone is going to visit. Feels like some news is coming from somewhere. On to the wide open field deep in my heart, a blizzard is making a raid. Sky and ground are becoming jumbled together. An enormous force is at the point of destroying the rampart in an invading position. Building competence and confidence, training long and hard, the doubly secured inside gets ready with poise to face the outside. The outside that breaks order the inside that strengthens chaos, life, turning its routine cartwheel, gets ready for the unmanageable tomorrow. The inside that breaks order, the outside that strengthens chaos. Abdicating today's order, new order approaches, just as dusk ascertains dawn. Within chaos, a new order is hidden. Everything is in the process of climbing a mountain, Chaos amid order and order, order amid chaos and chaos, must be the bridges connecting the things old and things new. After all, the snowstorm will pass through. Let it lash out as much as it can manage. And finally, I'm going to read a poem titled Rainbow Bridge. I am standing on a misty riverside where the road past crosses the road ahead. Given days are going past by like flowing stars. Overworked wheels of seasons turn all too fast. As the mud yellow rain lets up, will appear a stretching rainbow bridge connecting this side to that side. Curing fear and wounds reigns the rainbow bridge of reconciliation and comfort. Only into the tomorrow filled with flower buds, unblemished sky surges forward. Only into the heart prepared with joy, rainbow bridge will stretch open forward. These are just a few of the poems of Lee One Row.
who resides in Korea. The title of his book, Wedding Day, Selected Poems of Lee Wan Ro, and the publisher is Ex Libris. Thank you for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.